On today's show, we're going to start a new series that we're calling our summer series, and this topic is going to be on the issue of pricing. Welcome to Cracking the Code, the show that helps you overcome the challenges you face every day in contracting and keeps you on the cutting edge of emerging trends and best practices. Welcome to the audio version of Cracking the Code. Now, this was originally a video show, so if you hear us talking about something related to an image or any other visual element, you can see what we're talking about by going over to egia.org show and see what we're doing there in Cracking the Code. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. You know, pricing is an important issue all year long, but it's especially important during the summer season. I'll tell you why. One of the things I've seen in the heating and air conditioning industry is that oftentimes our revenue per lead actually goes down in the summer. I mean, think about it. When you've got more leads and your salespeople and your technicians are rushed, right, things are going crazy this summer, the, the tendency oftentimes is to spend less time with the homeowner, and what happens is we end up dropping the price to try to get the job quickly. So holding margins is always important, and making sure that you're properly pricing your goods and services and holding those prices during the summer is even more important. I mean, think about this. If you're losing $500 or $1,000 revenue per lead, when does it hurt the most, right? When you're running 25 leads a month in the, in, in, the, in the shoulder season or when you're running 100 leads in the summer? Imagine if your revenue per lead goes down $1,000 during the summer and you run 100 leads a month, that's $100,000 in lost revenue. So maintaining your revenue per lead is critically important during the summertime and you got to make sure to do that, that you're properly pricing things and of course holding yourself accountable to those margins. And to that end, I want to share a quick video with you that deals with the topic of pricing. One of the biggest challenges facing the heating and air conditioning industry is the dangerous underpricing of our goods and services. You know, it's crazy in our industry. When I look around, what I see is that we look at the least successful guy in the industry and we use that guy as the benchmark for pricing. Our service technicians and our sales guys come in and say, hey boss, look at this guy's prices. It's half our price. What they don't see is that guy is two years behind on his taxes, right? He's three months behind on his mortgage. His wife doesn't have the money she needs to take care of the house and the family all because he's underpricing his goods and services. And yet we look at that guy and somehow think he's the benchmark of where we should be on pricing. You gotta realize what we do is really important work. This is not child's play. We had a situation here in Colorado a few years ago that a family won a contest. And as a result of that contest, they got to spend the night in this beautiful multi-million dollar home in Aspen, Colorado. So the entire family goes to bed and the next morning, nobody wakes up. The entire family is wiped out because of carbon monoxide poisoning due to a faulty termination on a condensating furnace. Listen, this is not something you want to cut corners on. You have to price your goods and services so that you can afford to do things properly, so that you can train your people, make sure your technicians are qualified to do the work they have to do. Again, this isn't child's play. The bottom line is this, pricing your goods and services, it's a science. It's not something you just randomly do. I mean, think about it for a second. If you're doing a million dollars a year and your overhead is $350,000, that means your overhead is 35%. If you operate at a 50% gross margin, that means you do a million dollars, you have $500,000 left over, and out of that, $350,000 has to pay your overhead. That means you have a 15% net profit. So you can do the math and figure out where you need to be. So if you think maybe you're not using math to set your pricing, maybe you're just kind of winging it, you're just choosing some price out of thin air, what I want you to do is to take the time to watch our free training on properly pricing your goods and services. Gary Ellis is going to walk you through several models. You can use any one you want and apply them scientifically and mathematically to your business. Watch the videos, learn how to price your goods and services, and hey, start making a good living.
Now, of course, the reason that we want to price right is because at the end of the day, at the end of the month, we want to have that five-letter word, profit, right? Profit is not a four-letter word. It's a five-letter word. So you want to make sure that you're earning profit. That comes down to your pricing. But I want to share a video with you here from Gary Ellix on what it takes and a way to structure your pricing that focuses on profit per day. So let's take that same job, cost of goods sold, three grand. We'll take that same $3,400 job. So this is the one day job, and this is that same two day job. Salesperson got it right, total understanding, everybody's doing it right. Salesperson used divisor method here originally got it right, everybody's happy, no questions, no concerns. So if we did the sale price here at five grand, and we said, okay, fine. Now we don't have the sale price up here yet because we're gonna use a different method. We are going to use GP per man day here. So if we just said, okay, fine, our profit and loss statement says our gross profit here is now $2,000, great. We don't know what the gross profit number is here yet because we are fundamentally going to use this number right here as the basis for how we're going to create the price for the sale price for gross profit dollars per man day. So the discussion goes like this. If the overhead in this situation was, this is $1,500 per day. We said we were gonna use $1,500 per day, so I'm not saying that's the right overhead number for a company. You know, my business is about $800 per day. I've had companies that were running $335 per day. Um, I've consulted and worked with many companies that are well over 1,000 per day, so it's all over the map. It has to be done with a budget and a calculation. So if this is a two-day job, we know this number right here is $3,000. That's just two days of overhead, all right? And so we look at the profit and loss. We say, well, the job cost works out this way. EBIT is $500. Fantastic. Well, what do we want our EBIT to be right here? Well, that's going to be predicated on this number right here. So I'm just going to give you a base number that we would use. If overhead is $1,500 per day, and we know that number, meaning that we have calculated that using a budget, calculating the, you know, the actual overhead for your individual business, and it's $1,500 each day in the add-on change-out market, then I want a profit above that, and I'm going to use $2,500 as a profit, or excuse me, $2,500 as a gross profit number to give me $1,000 of profit on a job. So if I used $2,500, and I said, well, that's a two-day job, so each day, that's each day, is $2,500. Then this needs to be a $5,000 gross profit number right here. All I did was assign a $2,500 gross profit number per one retail labor install day. And you want to write that down. One retail labor install day is equal to some gross profit number. This example is $2,500. I want to make $1,000 profit on each $1,500 overhead. So $5,000 plus 3,400 is all you really have to do to create a sale price. This sale price right here is driven by the gross profit dollars per man day 
that's going to give me a $2,000 profit off of an $8,400 job. This is the essence of gross profit dollars per mandate. Now, when we talk about pricing, typically people assume that we're talking about the pricing on new system replacement. But it's also important to consider your pricing on service agreements. The summertime is a great time, even though you guys are busy, it's a great time to sell service agreements, which are going to fuel your business in the fall when you start doing fall tune-ups on, uh, on furnaces. So it's a great time to build that business during the course of the summer. So you got to think about the pricing on your service agreements. And sometimes you may be required to discount it a little bit to get those additional service agreements, but that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're making sure you make it up you know, on other areas of the call or in the sale, whatever it is. Take a quick look at this video from Gary Ellix on making sure that you're pricing your maintenance agreements properly. So what we want to do is we want to make it easy for the technician to sell a service agreement on a crisis demand service call. So by creating a discount, that's actually going to lower the price of the service repair based on the strategy. If we're going to do that, then that means that that $100 rate, if it's discounted, is no longer going to be $22. So what we have to do is we have to gross up that rate. And so I'll take you through the tool. The next discussion point becomes step six and also step seven. This is where a bit of confusion occurs when we do physical site training work or we do consulting and uh, service management uh, will often get a little bit confused about how the discount is applied. So I've got step six established at a 20% service agreement discount and I have a 50% uptake or conversion rate on the service agreements. Now that number can be changed. If I change that number from 50% to 25%, which is the minimum industry standard, you'll notice that the rate goes down from 303 to 287. And that's because the effect of the service agreement discount is being minimized. In other words, the conversion rate of 25% times 20% means that I'm only giving a 5% discount on average. So 75% of my customer base is not buying a service agreement. 25% of the customer base is. So that represents a net discount of 5%. Now in my company, we convert about 71% of our club customers over on demand service because we do give a 20% discount and we give a lifetime repair on the service repair if you join the club. So there's an economic incentive, there's a physical incentive, and there's an emotional incentive for a client to join our club. And uh, in this case, the 71% increases the discount rate to 14.2%, which means that the base rate of that company needs to be at $318. The purpose of the 318 is 14% discount is going to occur 71% of the time I'm giving away 20% and then 29% of the time I'm giving away nothing. So the base customer pays 318, the service agreement customer will pay 273 and we get to that 273 because we're giving away essentially 14.2% discount. Recently on our Ask the Experts call, we got a great question about taking your people from hourly to flat rate. Uh, I can tell you in my experience with business that the most productive thing we ever did, especially in our service department, was to move people to a performance-based pay, a flat rate system. In other words, their pay is based on their performance. Uh, in 2007, I bought a company, for example, with about 20 service technicians, and they were all on hourly. There was zero productivity, zero accountability. So, of course, we changed the program to a flat rate system. Here's the crazy thing. 
when we changed it, about half of the technicians left, right? The ones that did not want to be held accountable. The ones that wanted their pay with no relationship to their performance, you know, and what they delivered to the company. But the crazy thing is, with half the technicians on a flat rate system, we continued maintaining the same volume with half as many technicians. Because the people that were on performance-based pay produced more. They saw the opportunity, they hustled, they thought about their job uh, before they got to that job instead of wasting time, and the bottom line is performance went through the roof. I want you to take a quick look at this clip from Ask the Experts, where Gary and myself and Drew talk about going from an hourly wage to a flat rate, some of the things you could do, but also some of the things you have to watch out for. Gary, we are going over our price book and the way we pay our techs. Right now, we have a given amount of time we pay per job, and each tech has an hourly wage that they are paid off of. We are wanting to change to paying the guy a lump sum for any given job, piecework. Please advise on how to do this. Okay, Tovia, um, that's um, going to be a good question. It's going to it will be subject to uh, both state and federal law. So um, the Fair Labor Standards Act is going to be in play on that, uh, and then there will be some specific state laws that will also be in play. Uh, so the very first thing, I doubt that most companies are going to have this problem, uh, but you've got to pay minimum wage. So no matter what, the threshold has to hit at least minimum wage. So if somebody has a bad week on performance-based pay, or in this case you know, piecework, uh, you just have to make sure that it crosses that threshold. Uh, I would doubt seriously that that would be a problem, although, you know, it, it probably is conceivable. Uh, the second thing is, based on the laws, uh, you know, while you're paying piece rate or any kind of productivity pay, um, the IRS guidelines are written to be very nebulous, and they want those to be written that way for a reason, and the reason is, is they get to interpret uh, whether or not that position is in fact a line job or whether that's a production job, um, field staff versus you know managerial. So when you're doing task-based pay uh, and you're audited or you run into a situation where maybe you have a disgruntled employee who turns you in for some issues and things like that, and that's typically how this will, uh, will apply. Um, the audit itself, you have to keep track of the time based on the physical hours that somebody has worked. So even though you're on piece rate, uh, or some form of productivity pay, you have to track the physical work hours. Uh, so in California, you know, that's a 10-hour overtime law per day. Uh, in other states like Arizona, where our companies are based, uh, it's a 40-hour work week it's based on the federal law. So it doesn't matter that you're paying them on piece rate pay. Just make sure you keep track of the physical hours. So training time, uh, you know, areas where there are non-billable callbacks, those types of things. They still count, still have to be time card oriented. I would recommend that you keep track of that uh, electronically and sometimes even manually is good. Um, and then the last comment on that is, while we're piece rate pay, and I certainly believe in that, obviously that's how we organize our own businesses. Um, you still have to have a base rate that you're working off of. That's be a threshold where somebody starts. Um, so you can say, I'm gonna pay you $650 for an install for the day, and that's fine. But to calculate overtime, you have to work the hours backwards, uh, the hours, in other words, that somebody has actually put in the physical time to be able to calculate what's called an effective wage rate. Uh, so $650 for the day for the install is precisely what we would pay. But if the guy works eight hours, that's going to be different than if he physically worked 10 hours once he crosses overtime. Uh, so if he doesn't cross overtime, it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, you're going to be paying based payroll taxes, benefits, burden, 
uh, FICA feud is sued or those types of things, you know, based off the wage. But as soon as you cross over the overtime threshold, the hours calculation has to be brought into that equation. So you really are not going to get away from that particular problem as much as you want to. Um, there have been plenty of companies nationally that have tried that, and uh, all of them at some point or another have been busted. And all of them would tell you that uh, it sounded like a really great idea. And guys like me told them it's a really great idea as long as you aren't going to get caught. So it's probably not a really great idea. So I don't think it's a great idea to do it that way because eventually somebody will get unhappy and realize, you know, through a cousin or, you know, a, a neighbor or somebody who's an attorney or whatever and say, well, you should you were eligible for overtime because you were field production. So, again, the law is written in a very specific way, uh, which is vague. And so that allows somebody from the IRS or the state to come in and sit down and say, you know, do they manage people? No. Do they wear a uniform? Yes. Do you tell them what time schedule they're on? Yes. You failed all three of the acid tests at this point alone. So you have to pass all three. And so if you fail one, you're basically going to be problem. Uh, it's going to be problems relative to the audit. So the essential elements there are track the hours, uh, make sure that overtime is something that you pay attention to and that you pay. Uh, go to a piece rate system. I think that's the right way to do it. Um, it manages the task and the price for you. In other words, once you establish the price uh, task relationship and the wage that we're paying for that task, whatever that is, um, the price itself then is fixed. We've eliminated the variable cost of labor, uh, skilled production. The only variable becomes the overtime. And you're in charge of that. The service manager or the field operations person is 100% in charge of that. Um, just another side note, I mean, we rank our crews and we rank our technicians based on their productivity in the task-based system. Uh, so we call that a meritocracy. So if work is thin or we don't have enough service calls or there, you know, just isn't enough to feed, you know, all the people in the business that particular day, the stratification of rankings for productivity, the meritocracy, if you will, or how we would dole out who gets what calls. Uh, some companies would feed that across the board and leverage uh, the idea of average. Um, so um, we tell our guys up front, hey, that's not how we're going to do it. So make sure that you pay attention in training. That's why we train you. Uh, make sure you pay attention when we send you to workshops that suppliers are putting on. Your job is to create yourself as a better uh, human being and a better a productive technician or better installer. That's the purpose of that because the rankings do matter. And uh, so it's a little bit like asking, you know, do you want uh, Gary Ellix, Drew Cameron or Wally Long to have the ball at the end of the game? Or do you want LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Um, you know, I, I don't really know Wally's basketball skills, but uh, I know mine. And I think uh, Michael Jordan would be a better choice. Uh, so I, know, Drew, I think, be six, I think six, what four. you really want to be thinking about here is <laughs> peace rate is is definitely a good approach uh the, the last thing i would caution is don't use that as a a crutch for operational sloppiness um i always when i consult with companies tell the business owners and the leaders that performance-based pay or productivity pay piece rate in this case is really one of the last things that you do when you install uh, a productivity and reward system because you don't want to operationally get in the way, you know, of the pay system. You want the pay system to reward the guys and allow them a lot of runway to be productive. So inventory uh, stocking, standardized parts, truck stock replenishment, um, training on, you know, how to use the materials, how to create, you know, an actual repair, how to actually do the installation, standards for installation and service calls, 
there's a lot of things that can get in the way of making productivity or piece rate pay a useful tool. And I think what you want to do as a business is make sure that it's not a false start. So you want to make sure you have some of those operating practices, what I would call operational excellence in place before you institute that type of an approach. If you've got those things, then yeah, the guys are going to be very productive. They're probably going to like it and they're probably going to see the opportunity to make more money. Uh, we always track that concurrently for the first 90 days, by the way, and show the guys hourly as well as piece rate pay so that there's no surprises about the idea that the system itself is set up to actually reward the productivity enhanced tech or installer. Uh, the average guy is probably going to make about the same wage and the below average uh, producer is probably going to make less. And uh, we're transparent about that. And I think it's okay to be transparent about that. The idea is to get them up, you know, to average or better. So there you go. That wraps up our discussion about pricing, whether it's equipment, you know, repairs, or certainly on maintenance agreements. And I want you to join us next week because we're going to be talking about some things to do with your CSRs, right, your dispatchers, and how what they do also affects pricing. I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes about our snapshot survey. Most of you are probably aware that every month the marketing people at EGI send out this snapshot survey. And basically it's a series of questions on topics that we like to collect from contractors and then we share that information with you because it gets a pretty good benchmark. It lets you know what other people around the country are doing. When you see that survey come into your inbox and in your email, I want you to make sure and open it and answer the questions. This month, a couple of the questions, there were several, but two of them I want to talk about today with respect to marketing. The first one is, when does your company typically run special marketing promotions? Right? Here's what we found. 44% of contractors run the promotions in the spring. 9% in the, the summer, 47% in the fall, 32% in the winter, and 44% says it varies a no set time. Now this is pretty interesting. Obviously in the summer and the winter, your marketing expenses will probably go down because you're going to be very, very busy. The phones are ringing off the hook. On the other hand, in the spring and the fall, during air conditioning and, and furnace tune-up season, you may have to do additional marketing, especially on system replacements. By the way, one of the things I'll, I'll talk about uh, briefly is a conversation I had with Gary and Drew and how impactful having a strong service agreement base can drive down your marketing expense. Right? When you're marketing directly to your service agreement customers, right, it's way less expensive because your marketing is so targeted. If you've got 5,000 uh, service agreement customers, you're focusing right there on them. You send out 5,000 pieces, right? If I'm marketing you know, in a shotgun approach to the whole community, I might have to send out you know, 50,000 pieces to talk to 5,000 people, right? Or 5,000 people that will pay attention. So this is uh, very consistent with what we see around the country. I will tell you that if you uh, don't run promotions, you don't have a plan, you do it whenever you have to, uh, you probably need to spend some time with Gary or Drew and build a marketing plan. You need to have a plan that looks out three to six months a year in advance so you can kind of predict what to do and then you got to have contingencies. Right? You may have a plan for summer. Uh, I had a client recently, they had this great plan for summer, very successful company, but man, the summer never developed, right? It just never got hot uh, as they expected. And they didn't have a good, strong contingency plan to kick into gear and they really paid a price for it over the summer. And I will tell you, that's one of the smartest group of guys, one of the best run companies in the country. So if it can happen to them, I promise you it can happen to anybody. So take a look at your marketing plan, ask yourself when you're running promotions, make sure that you're building your service agreement base so you can spend less on marketing and above all, you got to have some kind of marketing plan altogether. Okay, here's the next question that was sent out this month. On average, what percent of your company's total sales are generated uh, by the promotions? In other words, what percentage of your revenue comes from those promotions? 35% uh, of our contractors said from 0 to 10%, so a pretty small portion. 
29% said 11 to 20%, 12% said 21 to 30%. Now here's where it gets interesting. 9% of contractors out there get around 41 to 50% of their revenue through promotions, right? Only 35% are getting that zero to 10%. Now think about the implications of this. If I'm getting 10% of my revenue from promotions, that means I'm getting 90% of my revenue from existing customers and service agreement customers, right? That's a pretty good deal when most of your business is coming from your existing customer base. If you're getting half your revenue from promotions, that means you've got a, a smaller customer base and you're having to do all this marketing to get these new customers. Well, guess what? That's pretty dang expensive, right? So again, it goes back to the point I made earlier. You got to build that service agreement base and that will drive down your overall marketing expense. So take a look at the, at the survey because they come every month. Participate every time you get the chance and review those to see how you're stacking up against the rest of the country. Well, folks, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed the discussion on pricing with your systems, of course, with your repairs, and don't forget your service agreement customers. And pay attention to your promotions. How many promotions are you running, right? How generous are you getting with your promotions? How do you stack up against the rest of the country? Join us next week. We're going to be talking about some of the conversations around your CSRs and your dispatchers, and have a great week. In the meantime, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye for now.